our topic today as uh, our Advent series is going to be is who is the King of Glory? And over the next uh, three or four weeks, we're going to be answering that question in various ways. And today, the answer to that question, I'll give it to you before we go through the sermon, is the King of Glory, the coming King, is the creator of heaven and earth. This is the theme for Bethlehem Walk, as you have probably already heard. It is the theme that will guide us as we interact with people. It's the question that we want to pose, and it's the answer, or it's the question that we want to answer for people as they walk through this. This is an incredible psalm, Psalm 24. It's a psalm about worship. It's a psalm about the incarnation. It's a psalm that we're going to spend at least three weeks in over the next number of weeks. It's a psalm that exalts our God. It gives our worship focus. It gives context to our lives. It is an incredible psalm for our help. It's a hymn of praise that directs our hearts towards God and to worship him in a manner that recognizes his glory and that acknowledges him for who he is. One person has wrote that a lofty, transcendent view of God is the most important thing about a Christian. As a person's vision of God goes, so goes his life. As a person's vision of God goes, so goes his life. One's life never rises any higher than his thoughts about God. And a high view of God will lead to holy living. On the other hand, a low view of God will lead to low living. No one can live any higher than his proper understanding of who God is. Charles Spurgeon said, The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God he or she calls his Father. It is no secret today that the glory and the might and the power of God has been diminished. This is why Psalm 24 and other psalms like it are so important for our faith and are incredible reminders to us of who our God is and what our God is like. As our knowledge of God goes, so goes our lives. And what better question to ask than, who is this King of glory? Who is this Christ who came? Who is this Christ who is coming back again? This uh, word king is not an uncommon word in the Bible. It's not a word that we use very often in our day-to-day language today. It's not a concept with which we're too familiar with today. We live in age of democracy. We live in times when you might have a dictator. But there are very few countries that actually live under the reign and rule of a king or queen in any effective manner. But yet the Old Testament, when you would have mentioned the word king, they would have immediately understood what that meant and the context that gives. In fact, if you were to go to a concordance and look up the word king, you would find that the word king is used throughout the Bible over 2,200 times. It is a concept which we ought to be familiar with, certainly as Christians who have the king of kings as our Lord and God. Over the next three weeks, We're going to ask this question, who is the king of glory? And I'll give you the three answers that we're going to get. 
The first answer is, he is the creator. The second answer is, he is the holy one. And the third answer is, he is the coming king. That's the answer to that question that is asked in three different ways in our text. The text begins, and we're only going to look at the first two verses this morning. The text begins with a dramatic declaration that the psalmist makes here. Just so we don't miss the point, when you look at the Hebrew text and the way that the word order is given, the first emphasis is on Yahweh. And it is simply to say, to Yahweh is the earth and all it contains. It's a way of emphasizing the fact that, that this world and all it contains is God's and nobody else's. The natural world and all its stuff, everything that fills it, all of that is the Lord's. This is the Lord's world. And so he says, to Yahweh is the heavens and the earth. I think we often come to worship at a time like this and a morning like this, and we come with small thoughts about God. We come with thoughts about God that, 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 that really are not in keeping with who he actually is. Here in this two verses, we have a statement about the ownership of God, the authority of God, the sovereignty of God, the power of God, the providence of God, all wrapped up in these two verses. This earth again and everything that fills it belongs to God and nobody else. The stuff in it, all that fills the earth, all the people in it, those who dwell in it are God's. There is not a single thing or a single person, not the smallest molecule, not the largest universe that is outside of the ownership of God. That's what the psalmist declares in these two verses. Every tree, every star, every house, every business, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, every universe, every island, every tree, every fish, everything, everywhere, everyone, it's all his. That's what the psalmist is declaring for us. And we need to have this running through our minds as we come to worship, as we walk with God day in and day out. It's helpful because it does put us in our place and it kills our pride. But it also is helpful because it encourages us to come to him in prayer. It encourages us to come to him with our stuff and with our needs. It calms our anxieties. It stills our fears. If you need something, God owns it. If you can't get it, God can give it. It's all God's. We begin worship then in this text, in this psalm, by considering what God has rather than what we lack. Ownership is a big deal. And I think we all understand that. Whether it's our own stuff or somebody else's stuff. Ownership is in the media constantly. Whether it's land claims, whether it's patents, whether it's property, whether it's bank accounts. Because we know that when you establish ownership, you establish control. And so we like to say, if I own something, I control it. Well, in this verse, the psalmist is establishing God's ownership over what? The world and everything in it. And if God owns the world and everything in it, then he establishes his right and power to control it and lead it and guide it. Paul, the apostle, affirms this. He says, quoting David in 1 Corinthians 10, 26, For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. God says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. Why? Because the world is mine and all that it contains. 
Moses, as he's approaching Pharaoh, he says, as soon as I go out of the city, I'm going to spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease. There will be no hail any longer. That you may know that the earth is the Lord's. The psalmist declares, the heavens are yours The earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it. Moses reminded the Israelites, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for the whole earth is mine. And in another place, Moses says, Behold, To the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Job, God speaks to Job and he says to him, Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. A couple verses later, David says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. God declares, For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. Who is the king of glory? He is the owner of this world. And because he is the owner of this world, he is sovereign over it. He rules and he reigns over it. And that should lead us to praise and adoration. J.I. Packer in his little book, Concise Theology, says this assertion of God's absolute sovereignty in creation, providence, and grace, listen to this, are basic to biblical belief and biblical praise. Do you understand what he's saying? He says, one of the basic things about coming to know as a Christian is that this is God's world. He is sovereign over it. He controls it. He guides it. He directs it by his grace. That is basic to a theological Christian understanding. And then he also says it's basic to biblical praise. When we come together on a morning like this to worship God, One of the things that should flood into our hearts and minds is, God, I thank you that you have led and directed my life this week. God, I thank you that you have led and directed the province this week. God, I'm thankful that you have led and directed this world this week. God, I'm thankful that you are in this this climate change summit that's taking place. God is leading, guiding, directing everything. And that is basic to our biblical praise as people of God. David is intentionally pushing back our frequent attempts to diminish God and to control God and to make him after our image. Loved ones, God is not only the God of us Christians here in Oceanside. God is the God of every single man and woman, boy and girl in this whole world. The logical question then would be why? Why is it his? Well, that's what he answers in verse 2. Verse 2, he says there, for, for, that's the reason. For, he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Again, there's an emphasis that's hard to pick up when you don't, uh, when, we, when we have it in the English version. But the way that it is written and the emphasis in the language is that he himself and no one else. I feel like I'm going to float away. You all hear that? It's not just me, right? Um, (laughs) We're talking about the universe, you know. (laughs) I've never done that before. (laughs) Thanks, Ian. It was nice. (laughs) It was kind of (laughs) nice. Yeah, at the end. It's time to go for lunch. 
The emphasis, though, on in this text is that God himself and no one else. It's not like there's a, a, pan, a, a pantheon of gods up there and they all kind of make a little bit of this and a little bit of that and they all throw it together and out comes this world and everything it contains. No, the emphasis is very, very clear. It's he himself and he alone who has made this world, this universe, and everything in it. Isaiah affirms this. He says, For the Lord is God, and he created the heavens and the earth and put everything in place. He made the world to be lived in, not to be a place of empty chaos. He says, I am the Lord. There is no other. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. There's only one God who is worthy of adoration and praise. And it is the God who reveals himself to us in Scripture. There's two verbs that are important for us to at least think about because they they push us into further theology in verse 2. And they are the verbs, he founded it and he established it. Those two verbs speak about the past work of God and the present work of God. The past work of God is he founded the world, he created the world. You go to Genesis 1 and 2 and you you read about what God has done. How he made it all, he finished it all, he said it is very good and he rested. Our God has made it all. The second word, which most translations don't pick up the the subtle change in the verb, is is his present work, and it should be he establishes. The idea is behind it that he continues to maintain, that he continues to look after, he continues to guide this world. And Alec Mottier, a a commentator, a great Old Testament commentator, says it should be translated, he continues to maintain. So you see what the psalmist is saying here, loved ones? He's saying that not only did God create this world, but now he maintains this world. He guides it. He directs it. It has a beginning and it will have an end. And every nanosecond along the way, God is guiding and directing it. Together, these two verbs, I think, infuse a sense of stability into this world. It's why we have laws of nature, so to speak. It's because God has made this world with order. He maintains this world with order. So therefore, you can go boil water this afternoon, and it will boil at the exact same temperature that it boiled 2,000 years ago over a fire. God has put stability into this world because he made it and he maintains it. This doesn't mean that there will never be tornadoes or earthquakes or floods. Neither does it mean that there will be no further revolutions if the Lord tarries or terrorist attacks. But it does mean that the promises of Genesis 8, 21, and 22 will prove true, which tell us about God's way in this world. And because of that order that God has created, there is a predictability to our life which makes both science and sanity possible. It means that there is a steadiness, a certain steadiness about life in God's creation that I can depend on. And because there is dependability, because there is a steadiness, because there is a stability, I can be, I can be cured a large degree of my anxiety and my fears and my worries. Because God is guiding this world. So the stress in the text comes from these two Verbs, founded and established. Who is this king of glory? He is the one who founded the world. He made it all. He created it all. He declared it good. And he is the one who establishes it or continues to maintain it. 
If verse 1 gives the focus on ownership and sovereignty of God, then verse 2 emphasizes that all things originate from God and by his providence he continues to maintain what he has built. The shorter catechism describes providence this way. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creations and all their activities. J.I. Packer writes, the doctrine of providence, listen to this, loved one, this is so helpful. The doctrine of providence teaches Christians that they are never in the grip of blind forces, i.e. fortune, chance, luck, or fate. All that happens to them is divinely planned, and each event is a new summons to trust, obey, and rejoice, knowing that all is for one's spiritual and eternal good. That's what the doctrine of providence teaches us. Let me remind you of them. We are never, ever in the grip of blind forces. All that happens to us is divinely planned. And each event that happens in our lives is a new summons to trust, obey, and rejoice. That's the confidence of the writer of this psalm. I I have got numbers of references. I will not read them all, but I want to let you see this in Scripture. There are dozens of them that establish this truth about the providence of God uh, in, in Scripture. He established the world on its foundation so that it will not totter forever and ever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his loving kindness is everlasting. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that the word of, by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Thou alone art the Lord. Thou hast made the heavens, the heavens and the heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that's in them, the seas and all that's in them. Thou dost give life. Life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before thee. Of old thou didst form the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. Do you not know, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hand, and I ordained all of their hosts. And on and on and on the scripture goes. Paul says in Acts, the God who made the world and all things in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made with hands. The writer of Hebrews says, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things which are invisible. God's dominion over this world is based upon the fact that he has fixed it and he establishes it. And together, these two verses establish God's right to rule by virtue of his created work. He is the king because it's his stuff. God owns it all because he made it all. God is sovereign over it all because it all belongs to him. Is this your king? Is this your God? Is this how you come before God with your mind in prayer? Who is the king of glory? He is the creator of heaven and earth. Let me give you some practical implications of this for our life. I think there's not a chance that David would write this kind of thing and God would have him write it 
just so we could stuff this thing in our head and say, I know something about God. There are incredible practical applications of this very truth in our hearts and lives today. The first is simply this, that it should make us value the wisdom of God. It should make us value the wisdom of God. Both Jeremiah and the writers of Proverbs extol the wisdom of God. Proverbs, in fact, exhorts us to seek wisdom. And it appeals to creation, and wisdom herself speaks in chapter 8. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. When there were no depths, I was brought forward. When there were no springs abounding with water. When he established the heavens, I was there. Proverbs 3.19. Notice the two verbs that the writer will use. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth, and by understanding, established the heavens. Jeremiah writes, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. You see, the point is straightforward. It means, it was by means of the wisdom and the understanding of God that this whole world in which we inhabit and this universe in which we are part of was made. What staggering wisdom that must have been. The writer goes on and says, Now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. You see, loved ones, there is great value in seeking wisdom from God. In fact, there is nothing quite like God's wisdom. Proverbs assumes, and I would argue rightly, that the God who speaks in the rest of the Bible is the same God that created this world and that the psalmist is describing in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4 or 24. If so, do you understand what he's saying? We have access to a God whose wisdom is beyond anything we can comprehend. You have a trouble? You can't understand something? You can't work something out? Why not go to the God who by his wisdom created the heavens and the earth and maintains them in their place? There is nothing that he does not know and that he cannot help you with. Secondly, I think a verse like this helps us refresh the boundaries of our relationship with God. I don't think it takes a rocket scientist for us to figure out that we're not on the same playing field as God. There's no chance that we will ever be considered his equal. And yet we try to play God. We have other religions in which we control the gods. There's something in us that does not want to submit to one who has power and control and might over us. David has just told us that this God, the King of glory, happens to have created the heavens and the earth. So what have we done in comparison to him? I suspect it sounds a little jarring for us to hear something like this. But I'm surprised at how often my mindset goes to diminishing God and his power and his might. Isaiah understood this. He spoke to his contemporaries this way. This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and your Creator. Do you question what I do for my children? Do you give me orders about the work of my hands? I am the one who made the earth and created people to live on it. With my hands I stretched out the heavens. All the stars are at my command. 
Can you relate to that line of questioning? Have you ever argued with God in a tone that sounded you knew better than he did? See, wrestling once again with a passage like this, with what the psalmist has just told us about God, should help put us in a proper relationship with God once again. To recognize that he is vast, that his wisdom is unsearchable, and that if there is something that he has not told us, there is good reason for it. We ought not to question, we ought not to rail against, we ought not to argue with him. Until you or I can rival God in creative power, in sovereign rule, in providential care, then let's not be so hasty to question or challenge his activities in our lives. After all, do we really think that we're qualified to tell God how to do his job? David helps us find our proper place in relationship with God again. The third practical point of this is that we learn something about the God to whom we pray. Jerusalem was in big trouble. The army of Nebuchadnezzar was besieging the city, and it really looked like the city was done. But there was one prophet named Jeremiah who was in the city. Some of you may know what he prayed. Ah, Lord God. It is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. See, against such overwhelming circumstances, Jeremiah set the creator God. Against all that was pressing in against them as a people and a city, God placed the power of God who had spoken the universe and the world into existence. I think it was his reasoning. If God can create this world and everything in it and maintain it and guide it, then certainly God, if he wants to, has the power to deliver this city from the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. One person wrote, and this has been helpful to me, perhaps the greatest secret of prayer is knowing the one to whom we pray. Who do you pray to when you get up in the morning? Who do you pray to when you go to bed at night? Do you pray to the one who has such amazing power and might to not only create this universe, but to maintain it in its existence? If you do, then you ought to know that nothing is too difficult for him. Fourthly, we are reminded who needs who. A couple of thousand years ago in a place called Athens at Mars Hill, a preacher was speaking to an educated and religious group of people. There were a number of things that they did not know and others that they just outright got wrong about man's relationship to the gods and God's relationships to men. And so he formed them. He said, let me tell you about this God that you worship in the form of an unknown idol. The God who made the world and everything in it being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. And here it is again, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You see, it seems like they were under the impression that the gods needed them, that the gods were controlled by them, 
that somehow they lived in temples that they built, and if they didn't build the temple, the gods would get cold. If they didn't bring their food offerings, the gods would go hungry. Paul is very clear. God does not live in your buildings, nor does God need your food. And I think sometimes as God's people, we think that God exists somehow in this building. We sometimes think that God really needs our offerings. We sometimes think that God needs our service. Otherwise, he would be in big trouble. But Paul turns it around the other way and he says, listen, your very next breath depends upon this God who made the heavens and the earth. Who is this king of glory? He is the one to whom we depend upon for our very next breath. And the last point, and I'll only give you half of this one, And it's part of coming full circle about ownership and sovereignty and providence. Such a truth drives fear from our lives. We live with so much fear. And I believe that one of the solutions to the fear that we experience would be to go and read Psalm 24, 1 and 2 every time you're afraid. To come back and remind yourself of who God is and how powerful God is. I have a sense that these two verses of Psalm 24 are all you would need to calm your fears and set aside your anxieties. Now, sometimes it's very helpful to personalize Scripture. I've done this a lot of times um, in my prayer life in particular. In my devotional life, I will write these things out. For instance, you might encourage yourself by saying, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and all its terrorists. See, sometimes when we simply just have this word here, the world and all those who dwell in it, we, we don't think about the people that we're fearful of. So take the person you're fearful of or the peoples that you're fearful of and insert them where it says there, all those who dwell therein. Loved ones, God is in control of your nightmare boss. God is in control of your difficult neighbor. God is in control of the terrorists who, te- who seem to thrive on trying to create fear in our hearts and our lives. Loved ones, there is not a single human being who is outside of our God's control, sovereignty, and providential rule and reign. Or maybe you might say, the earth is the Lord's and this cancer that I am battling. The world and all who dwell in it. See, what do you fear? What what are you dealing with? What are the circumstances of your life? Have Have you ever fit them in to that framework, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It doesn't mean just the good things. It means the bad things as well. All of it is in the hands of our God. There is nothing in this world that our God does not own. There is nothing in this world that our God does not control or guide or direct. 
There is nothing in this world that our God does not contain. There is no random molecule. There is no random event. There is no unforeseen circumstances. Therefore, fear not, loved ones. Our God has founded and established this world. We ought not be afraid. So, loved ones, all the stuff of this world and all the people of this world are God's. He made them. He owns them. This is his world. He made it. He owns it. He governs it. He guides it. Who is this king of glory? He is the creator of heaven and earth. Our God and Father, we come before you today. I pray that you will help these truths to resonate within our hearts and our minds and that you will help them to settle there for us this week. Lord, it is great basic truth for God's people. And it is great help in basic praise of our great God and King. Help us to reflect on this and to live in this reality this week, I pray. Amen.